Welcome back to System Ministry via the podcast where sometimes some of us go missing. This is Brent. I'm here. <laughs> and Hayden could not join us this evening. He's on a tight schedule, as is Jathan, and when we started recording, his mumble was doing what mine was doing last season, which is just backflips. Well, not backflips so much as just trying to do backflips and then falling on its face. He was, I mean, at one point he was, what was it, like 45% packet loss? Yeah, it was bad. It was pretty bad. It got a little better, but then it's like... But it, 25%... It's unreliable. Yeah, 25% and loss is if so it bad. drops out halfway through an episode, then it's just worse. As, so it's like, as we just told him to get the fuck out. No, he, he offered to... He just got the fuck out. Right, yeah. <laughs> so he's going to some IBM education. What is it? IBM, IBM University? Tech U, I think. Tech U, yeah. I think that's I it. I don't know. Some hippie shit. So he'll probably be able to talk about that next episode. Oh, yeah. He was going to give us a tip tonight, but, you know, he's going to hold on to that for the next time he's able to join us. <laughs> and we have one of our own, so yeah. we'll talk about Two that for tips, a even. Two tips, even. Well, it's one tip. We're, we're splitting the tip. We're sharing a tip. We're, split, we're splitting it. Is that docking? Huh? Is that docking? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. But the real meat and potatoes of tonight's episode is workstation management in enterprise environments. In other words, how do you manage the client machines in your large network to be able to treat them as an actual fleet? So we'll be touching across some useful things there and how yeah. to approach that. That being said, and, and, oh, yes. Well, specifically, yes, we're going to talk about that, and that's the goal, and we're going to talk about it and blah, 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 whatever. But Are you switching I... things up on me? Are we not talking about that? No, I just think okay. we're going to have, like, different things to contribute. Like, I oh, think yeah. Yeah. my environment is probably a little bit more diverse and dynamic than the ones you've been a part of or Mine are, are totally now. dynamic because we're all remote workers. So okay. they're all their all right, own Well, machines. we'll just see what happens when we yeah, get there. But, but I've had some experience in this in the past, so that'll mostly be what I'm going to be drawing on. Yeah, so that being said, Jathan, what are you drinking? Hogs back rye whiskey finished in a rum cask it is a 95 percent rye that has a very surprising sweet note at the end it might be my favorite whiskey right now i don't know if it's possible for you to buy it so don't ask me where i got it don't ask me anything about it anymore <laughs> eventually you'll be able to buy it though oh okay so is this perhaps a whiskey that was obtained through a less than legal method. I actually don't know the answer to that. Okay. <laughs> okay. I see. <laughs> uh, just, just so you know. I'm not really sure of the legality of the way I obtained this okay. whiskey. <laughs> okay. Well, but I was, it will I was be more... for sale. It is, it's local to Colorado, so I don't know how many of you will be able to find well, it. Well, right. But... I mean, I'm sure you could probably get it shipped or something if you really wanted to pay the yes. dosh and for it's, it. It's but... honest to God, fucking worth it. Okay, fair enough. By the way, it is legal to do very small batches of liquor without being considered a bootlegger. You don't need a liquor license to... or a, a, to, Is that true? Yeah, yeah, very small batches. I think it's like... I'd have to look up the exact number. I guess we can put that in the show notes. But yeah, very small batches. I Now, I don't think you can sell them without a license to do so. Without like a, a I license thought, to well, brew I thought... or distill. Okay, so here's the thing. I think it's one of those weird things, though. It's legal to distill, but it's not legal to buy or make a still. No, no, you can... I'm pretty sure you can still buy and make and or make a still. 
the problem comes to distribution and quantity from what I remember. But I mean, we can link it, link to it in the show notes. This is now whiskey administrivia. Yeah. But from what I remember, it's it's perfectly legal to obtain the equipment needed for it and to make. Per, I think the exact wording is like personal sized batches or something like that. Hmm. But yeah, you can't. Well, knowing my habits, that's about a case or two at a time. What? <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Maybe a pallet. I actually. You know what? I actually have to get up for just one second because I just realized I left my beer on my on my uh, nightstand. Okay. Oh, you know what? I need a bottle opener. Hold on. Jesus Christ, he's the worst at this. <laughs> what? How many? It's like we haven't been have doing this for like four years now. <laughs> More. We're in. Yeah, this is our fifth four. year. So this is our fifth year. Yeah. I mean, granted, we're still early into the fifth year, but anyways. So yeah, I have another Guinness Extra Stout. That I'm opening with a knife again because I don't have a proper bottle opener on me. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm doing right now, Jason. I'm opening a bottle with my knife. Gosh, this brings me back to like season zero. It was just two of us. Very mellow. I was drinking Miller Lite. Yeah. I Pretty much all of season zero you were, I think. May or may not have occasionally recorded episodes in my office. <laughs> I remember that. No, you did that later too. I thought in like season. Two. I think it was just as, as zero because I never did it with Peyton. Interesting. Yeah, so that would have been season zero, huh? I did. I thought about starting to do it again just because, like, because you were. I don't know. It would be kind of cool if I'm train. Oh well, nah. I don't care about that. Uh, whatever. Yeah, how, train just adds. Character. Yeah, why have you had like a train at like every place you've lived in Colorado? Well, so. Here's the thing is, S0, I was in the dorms. Mm-hmm. S1, I lived with my ex-girlfriend, Steph. Mm-hmm. And we lived in the same complex I live in now. Okay. So S1, there was train. S2, I lived in a different place, no train. And then S3, I moved back to the same complex that I used to live in because I liked it better than where I moved before in between. Mm-hmm. And... So I'm back to the train. Okay. Now, but, but, I'm but, guessing in S1 when there was train, you almost never heard it because... No, I remember hearing if it. If you recall, that was the beginning of my closet recording. <laughs> but it was probably a lot quieter than it is now. Like, if I were to send you a picture right now, I could fucking piss on the train tracks from where I'm sitting. Whoa. I mean, I remember I remember hearing it before. Hmm. No? Definitely remember no. hearing it. And I don't remember hearing trains in season zero, though. Maybe I did? I don't know. No, S zero, you definitely didn't. Okay, I de- we I, mean, I was we on, heard, on campus still. We heard your neighbors. I guess they would be. Yes. Yeah. Body bongos. Body bongos. S zero E one. I don't know how you do that, man. It's creepy how you can remember the season ep- the episode IDs like that. Anyways, so I think we should get into the tip, <laughs> or yeah. or get the tip into us. I guess it would be. <laughs> Sorry. We gotta, we gotta make up for the window. Yeah. So, so we're <laughs> gonna be like, yes, almost like the train is headed for the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, so stupid. And how the amazing would be if the train came right now? The worst part <laughs> that would be pretty good timing. <laughs> the worst part is like I'm actually finding it funny because I'm so sleep deprived. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna totally admit this and, and call myself out. I totally boned our XMPP server yesterday, like hard. Like, I is there a lesson it. to be learned from this? 
Uh, yeah, check your backups, like you should be doing, and like I do for everything else, but I'm like, oh, it doesn't need it, you know, like I've got, okay, so let me get into this. So, we see... Maybe... Well, let me, let me We talk should about... have a whole episode we have... specifically about auditing backups. Yeah, I don't, I don't see how can we, how we can make a full episode out of that, but whatever, let me, let me just talk about this. Okay. So, we use eJapperD. And I use the RPM that they distribute because it's newer than the one that's in CentOS, like everything else in CentOS. And I was like, okay, like I've got some time, I'm going to upgrade it. So I download the new RPM. I, you know, I have a SQL dump and everything. I'm like, okay, here we go. And I install the RPM and my config goes missing. And I'm like, what, what do you mean you can't find the config? And I look and it's gone. It's gone. It's totally gone. The only thing I have left are uh, the stock config from when I first installed it on like 1801, version 1801, and the stock config that came with the RPM. So the ejabberd.yaml that I set up was just toasted, totally fried. Yeah, so it totally toasted the config file when I updated it. I'm like, all right, no big deal. I'll just pull it from backups. So I look. And the backup repository is there, but there are no snapshots in it. Now, I think what had happened was <laughs> I backed it up at one point. I filled her bum with lots of meats and cheeses. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's a throwback. <laughs> so I think I backed it up at one point, and then I removed it from my subsequent backups. Because I'm like, I'm never going to change this config. I don't need multiple copies of this, and I don't need to waste time checking for, you know, diffing it every time. And then at some point, I did a uh, a pruning, and I did not I did not keep that backup in the in the pruning because it was older than the pruning I did. I think it was like pruning for like thirty days or something. So it was gone from backups and totally toasted from that. So I had to spend all day yesterday basically redoing our entire XMPP config from scratch. But the good news is now I have it using our internal LDAP, our staff LDAP. Instead of, uh, I forget what I was using before, but it was not this. So that's good. Well, you, you know, probably so I, won't make that mistake again either. Probably will not make that. No, because it, that was an entire day wasted and I just was so mad about it. But I'm not going to not going to be making that mistake again. There are like one or two things I need to fix and clean up. But for the most part, it seems to be OK. So anyways, so that <laughs> that train wreck of a tangent aside, we're going to be. For... You didn't say what you were drinking. I did. I said Guinness Extra Stout. I don't know if you did, but all right. Editor, if I said it, I want you to copy and paste it right here. So yeah, I have another Guinness Extra Stout, and that's when I said it, Jathan, because I know I said it. Anyways, so we're going to be talking about improving Nginx performance. Like, yes, this is the just tip, and it's going to be like quick things you can do that mm -hmm. aren't going to require like rewriting your entire fucking application structure or config I mean, just adding well, a few fucking things here and there maybe rewriting some changes, of your yes. config but yeah 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 i would say the number and i'm gonna take this from you because i'm <laughs> i would say the number one thing yeah, you can do bitch. is caching definitely caching yeah oh do you think that's number one i or do you think mm, it depends on your content type but i bet with certain content types compression gets you more performance i mean compression's definitely up there but I would say, for the most part, if you're really careful about how you do your caching, it's going to be number one, yeah. Because it's 
If you can do that for all of your static media you paths, basically, all that shouldn't be changing anyways, right? Unless you're using a CDN, in which case it's not hitting NGINX anyways. I would say for all of those, that's going to be the most beneficial because you, I mean, yeah, compression definitely helps. For everybody listening that doesn't know, browsers and web servers these days can do gzip compression. And it's really neat that I forget the RFC offhand, but I'll put it in the show notes. It's got its own RFC and everything. Yeah, so that does help, but probably not as much as caching. And yeah, there's a lot of dynamic web applications out there, but mm-hmm. that's... Well, and so along those lines, like even if you're running a CMS like WordPress or some Django-based CMS like Django CMS or mm-hmm. Wagtail, they have a very well-defined path to all the static files. So all you have to do is find out where that is and mm-hmm. then just enable caching on your static directories, and that won't affect your dynamic content at all. Right. That being said, you can also throw caching in front of dynamic content if you don't change it that much. That's true. You can also set a reasonable expiration different for the two different parts, and that will be okay. Right. Actually, our website for the podcast, all of the show notes are dynamically generated pages, but I cache them because they pretty much just change once, and that's when they go live. So I have the caching set for like 30 days or 60 days on them or something like that. Because it's very rare that I need to go back and change the show notes. So they may be dynamically generated, but definitely can use caching with them. So I have a question about that. Yes. If you send us show notes before a release and we give you corrections, do you flush the cache? No. Wow. I mean, people are just getting fucked here. Well, no. I mean, they're fine. Like, I don't force flush the cache, but I'm sure they're fine. Fucked by the tip. (laughs) You could start doing it if you want, you know, it's up to you. You just need to control F5 it. Yeah, usually if you hold shift when you press like control R also. Shift control R? Well, yeah, when why you would I press a page? Well, yeah, but why would I press three buttons when I can just press two or three? Keys? I don't know. I don't use F5 to refresh. Really? Yeah. I feel like everybody uses F5. What is wrong with you? <laughs> control R? Oh, that's the most. Yeah, bad. man. You know what? You, I, you don't even have to leave home row for that. Yeah, but, like, well, you do, because R isn't on home row, and neither is control. Okay, but your your hands stay on, like, the main part of your keyboard. I don't think I can. All right, we're doing a Twitter poll. (laughs) All I'm saying is it's really uncomfortable for me to keep my hand in the same position to hit control and R at the same time, while still keeping everything. All right, I can hit control with my pinky and R with my, the fuck is that, pointer, index finger? But, like, my my middle and... <laughs> learns about his fingers for the first time. <laughs> Shut up. But my... <laughs> keeping my middle and... It's not your Which ring finger. Which one is this but again? <laughs> your, but keeping your middle and ring finger on the home row, that, like, I have big hands and that's uncomfortable. Uh-uh. All I'm saying is I think it's easier to just use F5 because that's what everyone uses. Anyways, point being... I don't worry about it too much because usually I link you guys to like draft formats, like the actual status changes. So internally, when Mm. I publish the finalized, it doesn't, it invalidates the cache. It sends the header itself. So, oh yeah. Uh, Speaking of caching, you can either as a client, tell the web server to update the cache or the web server can be configured to, you know, ignore that. Or the web server Mm -hmm. can tell the client to use whatever is in its cache. And there's a couple of different ways of managing that, but for the most part... Do you part, have a recommendation? Well, I mean, it's all done in headers. It's just a matter of which headers you send. And 
you can either send it as as like a I think there's a specific header for cache and validation, or you can send like cat oh what is it called cache I want to say cache delay, but I know that's not right. Or there's one where it's time based basically, and you say time based and it's like invalidated after like zero seconds. There's mm-hmm. RFCs for it. I'll dig them up. I don't remember exactly what it is because Nginx handles all that for you. So you don't really need to worry about that too much. But, you know, we'll be putting exact stuff in the notes to show you how to manage the aging of that cache. But yeah, so caching is probably number one with Nginx, I would say. But as you said, you know, the gzip compression is definitely a close second. It really Mm -hmm. helps with not so much with many frequent hits, which is what caching excels at, but rather... Well, Large because heads. it's important to remember, compression is single-threaded. I think so. It, I mean, it depends. Most applications. Yeah, it depends Unless on the you're library. using something that's... Yeah, but almost always. Hmm. Gzip is single-threaded. Unless you're using PIG-Z. Right. right. Which I think honestly just does some kind of weird fucking wrapping and selectively examines your fucking archive and runs different commands just to extract certain parts. But I don't know that for sure. So if anybody knows how the fuck that works, you can let me know. <laughs> Well, it's open source. You can just read the source yourself. Yeah, I'll, I'll look it up. And yeah. maybe we'll make it a tip sometime. But anyway. <laughs> maybe. Well, it would yeah, have to so be Yeah, so really, if you have a lot of people, if you have... No, it wouldn't. It using would. PigZ could be a fucking oh, tip. Using PigZ, yeah, but like the internals of PigZ yeah. would be a 15 clams. No, no, that would be a 15 clams. Yeah, yeah. maybe I'll do that too. Okay. All right, anyway. <laughs> so what's important when you're enabling compression on your web server is to look at the amount of traffic you're getting and... Mm-hmm compare it to the speed and capability of your web server. Because if you are getting lots and lots and lots and lots of hits, you will fuck up potentially. You will take a hit on your CPU. Absolutely. Yeah. And the good when thing you're with, doing compression. The good thing with Nginx is you don't need to you don't need to commit to one or the other. You can all of this is path based in Nginx. Yeah. So you can And you can also change the compression level. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You yeah. can say you know, GZIP9, uh, that would be a little bit crazy, I think, for a web server, you don't but really depending gain on what you're serving. Yeah, you don't really gain a lot between yeah. 9 and, like, 7. So Right. But, you know, if you're at GZIP9 or 7 and you're seeing performance issues, take it all the way down to 2 and, like, okay, it's doing okay. Maybe bump mm-hmm. it up to 3 or 4. Find where the balance is for your specific needs such that you're comfortable with the load on your server relative to the amount of traffic you're serving and everything else. Yep. Yep. And like I said before with the path, I mean, it's super configurable. You can both cache and compress for like one specific URL. You can do only caching on another URL path. Uh, You can change the length of validity for that cache for another URL. You can change the compression levels for different URL paths. So it's really flexible Mm -hmm. when it comes to this. Like really, I love Nginx so much for, especially for static serving content. Yeah, Nginx is awesome. The other thing to think about is not just what you want to include in your caching, but what you want to exclude. Right. Yeah. That does get a little trickier. So if you set some top, it can, yeah. Yeah, because you need to make sure you set the You basically have to explicitly define everything under it. Yeah. Before you define it. Yeah, because Nginx is top to bottom. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing. This is great. Great, great tip. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's these are useful things to know, and maybe maybe people out yeah, there practical. are Apache users, and they don't understand how awesome Nginx is and why they should switch because they definitely should. It's 2019. <laughs> so the other thing Nginx can do, not really can do, but something you can do to improve Nginx performance, is make sure you have efficient routing in place. 
So like I just mentioned, your location blocks are done top to bottom. And if you have a particular location block that only changes some aspects of it, it will redo the request internally top to bottom after applying that rule. So let's say you have a location match that literally only changes, say, the compression level for GZIP. It would do that for the request, and then it would run through all of them again. So keep that in mind. It would be better to, I mean, it's a pain in the butt because it's more to maintain, but this is why Nginx supports include files. It would be better to have the same directives under both location matches because then you can serve the content and change that compression level at the same time at the same location block, and it wouldn't have to run through all of the location blocks again. Right. So that is something else to keep in mind. That literally, depending on how complex your Nginx setup gets, that can make a difference of about two seconds to a request. I doubt it would ever make a difference much larger, and that is admittedly on the larger side of what it would affect, but I have had cases where it made that much of a difference. And in web traffic, two seconds is a long time. You know, that's a big deal. So, worth a grain of salt. What else? You know, those are the two big ones. Not really... three, if you include the sort of... Well, yeah, right. Not really a performance thing, but I use Nginx a lot for SSL termination. SSL TLS termination. I don't. I don't have a reason to, or I would, but I just don't. All right, so let me give an example. We've talked about Vault before. Now, Vault has a built-in option for... Calm down. Sorry. For doing HTTPS. I mean, remember, Vault underneath the hood is entirely an HTTP REST API. That's literally what it is. So it has the option to run its own HTTPS termination, which is fine and dandy. But if you're using something like Let's Encrypt, which, you know, renews every, uh, what is it, 60 days, I think? That means you're going to be restarting Vault every six days to pick up the new cert change. And you are going to need to unseal it every time you do that. And if you're trying Which to is do not something necessarily trivial, no, I mean, if you've got something like if your key is sharded as it should be, you know, that's S H A R D, not S H A R T. If it's sharded like it should be, that means you need to get all of your key holders together or the minimum number of key holders together to unseal right. it every time that cert updates, which is a pain in the butt. Because to my knowledge, there isn't a graceful way to tell Vault to reload the cert. But with Nginx, you can, and it's really, really nice. So you can just have the Vault instance run plain HTTP, only listen to local. That's the important part. Only listen to Mm -hmm. local loopback address. And then have Nginx reverse proxy to that with SSL termination. With Well, I should say TLS termination. Yeah. That's the right way to run Vault in production. What is? With a proper web server in front of it. They, so the guy, like the lead Their deployment documentation... Oh, does? Their deployment documentation, yes. I, I guess they changed their stance. I just went through this. Okay, cool. Well, possibly, because, I mean, their documentation is fucking changing a lot. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, if you work for HashiCorp, like, I fucking submitted a bug for the Vault SSH helper, like, two weeks ago, <laughs> and nobody has touched it, and I'm getting a little fucking angry. Well, just comment on it and be like, hey, any progress on this? Because I was, again, looking at one of their GitHub issues or something like that. And their one lead dev, I don't know if he owns the company or what, he seems pretty high up on the chain. He was very adamant about people not using a reverse proxy to Vault and running Vault in plain text. Because, you know, he's like, oh, if that server gets compromised, I'm like, yeah, but it's on localhost. So, you know, doesn't really 
<laughs> make a difference. He was, he seemed pretty adamant yeah. about it. But I guess they've changed their tune about that, which is what I would recommend anyways, because like it's a lot easier this way. Anyways, to close that up, if you can get, you know, CertBot or with Let's Encrypt to update your certs automatically and then have Nginx SSL terminate, you don't even need to sever connections to serve that new cert. An Nginx reload, mm-hmm. Nginx dash S reload, will just load the new certs in memory and serve that for new requests while maintaining the old connections. Love Nginx. You can't do that with Vault. That's actually the same for config file changes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It basically reloads so. all of the files, config files, include files, cert files, whatever, back into memory. Very useful. It's a graceful restart, I think, for you Apache guys. Uh, same thing. Yeah, so that will then serve the new cert without severing connections. Super useful. And then you can also like tweak the SSL parameters. You can do HSTS and all sorts of fancy stuff like that that you can't do with Vault's self-termination. Yeah. So that's, yeah, a, that's I mean, a small example. Even if you example, had to change but... like your SSL ciphers that you're supporting mm-hmm. or the versions of TLS you support, you would not have to restart Nginx to do that. Right. Oh, I was more so referring to hardening the connection that Vault clients use. Yeah, yeah, right. You're yeah. talking specifically about Vault. I'm just... But it's, it's as an example of what you can do with it. Right. It's great for terminating TLS because you can do things like this. You can both harden the connection... And you can also maintain it a lot easier without needing to restart your primary service. So. Yeah, and, you know, talking, this has gotten wildly off-topic, kind of. But, a little um, bit, but we're still on topic. If you talk about using Nginx as a proxy for something like UWSGI, the same thing applies. Mm-hmm. When you're using Apache, you have, like, mod UWSGI. Right. You have to restart Apache to apply changes to UWSGI. With Nginx and UWSGI, you don't have to do that. Just do a reload, yeah. Yeah. Right. Very useful things. Because it's not really being like spawned as any sub-process of the web server, and it's not modular in the same way Apache is. Right. So you do pay for that in the sense that you don't have like HT access files where users can manage their own yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, and things like is, that. But... It means you're configuring more services as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I think that it's a totally worthwhile trade-off. Mm-hmm. And once you have a working example, it's so easy to copy and paste. Like, Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. we should I think on. we're yeah, I think we're done with that. That was longer than I expected it to be. That was <laughs> a real shaft. That was we we shafted ourselves. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a bit long, but that's okay because I don't think the topic itself is going to take that long. No, I think fifteen clams might get a little lengthy. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll try and keep the topic uh, yeah. short then. So, yeah. workstation management in enterprise environments. Jason, how many workstations do you manage? One. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know what? That's I am out of that fucking business, man, and right. I'm happy about it. Right. I mean, that's more than I currently manage. I help some of our staff when they have problems setting up like their staff VPN. Yeah, and I stuff, mean, I'll, but... I'll help somebody. We do have like we have a desktop support team that's dedicated for doing that. Okay. Okay. So this is probably be more apt for them. There are because we're like working with a bunch of fucking scientists and shit. There's occasionally people who will show up with Linux on their laptop, and then I step in and help. When right, because you're the one that does it. But yeah, but primarily, yeah, I don't, I don't really manage any workstations. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so we're we're kind of in the same, a very similar boat. We're like paddling alongside each other, or rowing aside each other, I should say, in that sense. But previously. I had managed, oh, what was it? I think eight workstations, and that's the largest number I've done. But 
it was in a scalable way. It was done in a level that could scale to maybe 500 comfortably. So there's some key points with this. I would say number one is probably your network, obviously, because duh, that's how these computers are talking with their infrastructure and things like that. You're networking, you're going to be paying a lot of careful, close attention to your addressing. You want to make sure it's a large enough CIDR to accommodate all of them. To your bridging, if you have remote sites and you're, you're bridging over VPN, you want to make sure that those that those two LANs can route to each other if they need to talk to each other. You're going to need, especially need to pay attention to traffic flow as well. I mean, if, it's, if you've got a large number of employees on site, that can get a little hairy. So you might want to split that up across different routes out, you know, different WANs. Or do bridging, I guess, or whatever. You know, there's a couple different ways of doing it. But just basically, network is going to be your number one place to look at first when designing this. And I don't want to spend too much time going into the design of the network because that's... I mean, number one, I'm not a net admin. So, like, I'm comfortable with networking, but it's not my strong suit. And it's not... I don't know. It's it's too complex of a topic. I would love to have a net admin on sometime to talk more about. Yeah, we should do that. Depth. Yeah, let's see if we can get someone on to do that sometime. But, you know, aside from that, I would say the key things are the hardware profiles of the workstations themselves, managing them as assets, basically, inventory keeping, right? Accommodating different departments' needs because HR and your engineering department might have totally different software needs and even totally different OS needs. And a way of centrally managing user identity, right? Do you want to talk about any of those first, Jathan, in depth? I don't think so. Okay, <laughs> okay, I'll just go through in order then. I just... Yes. Yeah, I'll just I'll jump in when I have something to okay. add or subtract. Fair enough. So for the hardware profile... They've fallen out of vogue, which is a shame because they tend to be much cheaper. But I would recommend trying to get thin clients. And that's basically clients that do no persistent storage on their own. And then you also have, I think, hybrid clients, they're called, something like that, where they basically only store a cached version of something. Fat clients, yeah, I know, it's obvious naming, but whatever, are actual full-blown workstations you know, with persistent storage locally where users would store their own files and stuff. You don't really want to do that. You want a central place where you can manage those files because then that guarantees that those files are available for other workstations. So in this case, if you use a thin client setup with a shared home directory or a shared user directory for you Windows folks, this lets you do things like replace a thin client and have them being able to log on immediately in the new dropped-in hardware and immediately get back to work because all their files are in the same place. They just need to wait for the cache to get pulled down locally, and that's it. Yeah. There are advantages and disadvantages to this. Right. I mean, I'm sure right. you're going to keep going. Yeah, yeah, keep going. Just Okay. I'm I mean, that's... That was a subtraction. That was a Jathan subtraction. <laughs> Fuck you, Jathan. A subtraction, not an addition. Self-deprecating <laughs> that... today. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so like Jathan said, there are downsides, namely waiting for that cache. And the reliability is entirely based on your network uptime. Well, right, right. But again, I mean, that it Which, would be anyways. Which, most places, that's... Right. Because you still uh, need to access Yes or no, it depends what you do. It depends what you're doing, right? So when I worked at CU for housing, mm -hmm. I used to work at the front desk in my dorm and like we made temporary keys for people and shit like that. Mm -hmm. That part, obviously, yes, relying on the network because you're checking into like a central server and right. assigning keys and shit. But the other thing we did was like checking out items from the front desk in like a large Excel spreadsheet. 
And sometimes, like, the internet would just stop working and be like, well, I can't do anything because this fucking thin client just, it's done. And it's like, uh, sorry, you can't. I feel like an Excel spreadsheet might not be the most ideal way of doing that, though, in the first place. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> My <laughs> I mean, point I being, disagree like, with no, you. your, your especially network... when everybody has a fucking card that they could, like, swipe or scan and right. just have their information. Right. It seems silly to me. But I wasn't in charge at that time. What? So <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm just telling you what we did, man. Right. No, I get it. I'm saying, like, I think no matter what, the network is always going, is always or should be the number one priority in this type of environment you always want to have your network available whether you use thin clients or not and since you already need yeah, to make I, that I mean, available I agree with that yeah and since you already need to make it available why not use thin clients but you just have to evaluate what your business really is right? yeah I if mean, you're dealing with a piece of software that can handle network unavailability like i'll give you an example right i have one of the facilities that i support is a microscopy facility uh-huh. the programs that run that stream data constantly off the microscope are intelligent enough to say if the network goes offline, stop writing to a network location and start writing locally. And then when it detects that it's back online, it starts, it just picks up where it left off sort of thin clients don't necessarily do that though. So, so if that's the type of, you know, obviously using a thin client for that scale of an application is not ever going to be a thing, but there are instances where your employees can still be productive without the internet or intranet. Or an intranet, yes. Yeah. And in that case, a thin client may not be your best bet. Although it also still could be. Cost is also a big factor here because thin clients can be very cost effective. Yeah. Yeah, very cost effective. And they're like they're practically it's honestly cheaper to replace them than repair them. Than repair them. Yeah. Yeah. They're so it's cheap. less staff time spent doing that kind of shit because if one breaks, you buy a new one and you don't yeah. pay someone to fucking. Or, I mean, you would literally have an inventory on hand of extras that you could literally just drop in. And they're already flashed with the proper networking info and stuff. So, like, you drop it in and go. It saves a lot of time. Very useful things. But this is this is really so much about the thin client itself or the hardware of the workstation. It's an important concept of it, but it's more about making sure that you have a way of central. I mean, keep in mind, these are like enterprise environments we're shooting for here. You have a way of centrally managing the data that your users are creating, altering, whatever. And thin client is going to be the most ideal way of doing that, I think, with everything considered, you know, monetary cost, time and effort things like that, that it's really simplifies so much of it. And then closely related to thin clients is Pixie, Pixie and iPixie. Mm. You definitely Mm. want some sort of central, if you are using fat clients, you want some sort of central imaging facility, some sort of tool you can use to reinstall an OS if it's needed on a fat client. You know, if you absolutely need fat clients, you definitely want this because now, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. That's probably related well, to what I, I want to talk about. I want to talk about how this sort of relates to the idea of a thin client. I don't know what the terminology is for the thing I'm about to mention, but there was a storage appliance that I refused to mention by name because things didn't end on great terms with the company. <laughs> right. But when the nodes of the storage appliance rebooted, they rebuilt from a Pixie server basically every single time. Mm hmm. So when it was time to update the server, the Pixie server just updated the image and then you'd reboot a node. And then when it restarted and rebuilt, basically it got updated. What is that called? What is that phenomenon known as? 
So like the OS is not persistent at all. Every reboot it rebuilds. Yeah. So with most, it's almost like clients, a thin client, but it's yeah. Thin clients do have some storage. It's, it's a very small amount, and it's typically solid state. You know, it's like a soldered on chip, but it's just enough for an OS to get you situated into the place where you can you know mount a remote directory as the user's home directory and so on and so forth. I'm going to be saying home directory, but users just you know replace that with user directory, whatever. Now, I believe what that's called is thin booting, where you even run the o- you run everything from memory. And you so what pull is from a remote resource. the actual application of that for n- not a storage appliance? Like, when would you or I do that? Or would we just not? That's really useful for, like, your front desk stuff, right? Stuff like that, where it's very single purpose and won't require a lot of memory to run. So it can run on a minimal OS, like a stripped down, I don't know, stripped down Linux or something. Point of sale systems would be a great idea to use for this if you needed to roll your own and not, you know, buy from a vendor. Using thin booting don't would do be that. what? What's I said that? Don't do that. What? Buy your point of sale software. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, that's a whole nother discussion. But you know, there's yeah, ups, yeah. there's something down yeah. to all of them. But if you wanted to roll your own because you've decided that would be more effective for your business plan then yeah i mean thin booting would be the way to go because it literally only has to run one well two things the os and the uh and the point of sale system yeah oh. and that's yeah. it oh but, you're talking about the client yes 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 yeah because really even the server is pretty fucking simple in that yeah or you, i mean you could even get a behemoth of a server and just have all the thin clients run like remote desktop sessions or vnc sessions or something mm-hmm. like that you know you can have run, you, you ever can scale up- it down even smaller yes this is jumping back a bit, but have you set up Linux thin clients before? I have. I set up a L2TP classroom for a Catholic school huh. back in the day. That sounds weird. I think that was uh, 30 clients? Did the priest touch you? No. The priest wasn't even there. This was after hours. <laughs> That's when they especially like to touch No, people. no. Calm down. No, they were like, yeah, we'll try it. And that was back when the Ubuntu L2TP was a thing. I don't know if it still is, but... I set them up with that, yeah, and they seem pretty happy with it. You know, they had a classroom that ran off of one server and then a bunch of thin clients, and they were actually remote sessions running on the server that they would essentially RDP. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not RDP because it's Linux, but they would essentially RDP mm-hmm. into. I wonder if you could use X2Go to basically not, create a thin oh, client for, that way. For Pete's sake, I keep saying L2TP. LTSP, Linux Terminal Services oh. Project, I think. Terminal Server Project. I don't project. even know, so I didn't, I didn't catch LTSP, that. yeah. Uh, you're right, terminal, terminal. I think. I wonder if you could somehow do that with X to Go, but Probably. I don't think because it's not. It requires a whole OS to run X to Go. I think so. Maybe not. But well, either way, you're going to need to run X. You need something to handle the image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just a matter of yeah. how fat that needs to be. And really, the whole point hmm. of that is running the applications themselves on the hardware of the server. In that case. So, I mean, you could even set up something like X window forwarding, running the application on the server and then having the window forwarded to the remote X session, something like that. But, you know, there, I mean, there's like, as with many things in Linux, there's like 15 different ways to do it. So just evaluate your options there and go at it. But, I mean, that's, we're starting to get a little bit off topic here, but finding yeah. a way to make sure that your clients can stay consistent with a central source of canonical data, I would say, is the point to take away from that. And then you also need a way of managing those clients. So you need some sort of asset tagging or inventory system. I think one of the favorite things I've seen was just 
you know, like some sort of internal system. It doesn't really matter so much what it is. I mean, hell, it could be a spreadsheet for all I care. I would recommend maybe against using a spreadsheet, but, you know, even like something like LDAP or MySQL backed or something. And then they would identify the clients with a little QR code sticker. So you could literally just scan it with whatever, like a, a smartphone, and then have that pop it back to the inventory system. You'd have functions assigned that saying, I'm putting this into use or I'm removing this from use for maintenance or whatever. It's a very quick and fast and easy way of managing your inventory. But I mean, I'm, again, we're not going to spend too much time on that because there's hundreds of different asset tagging and inventory models and systems and software and stuff out there. So that's up to your own evaluation. But yeah, rollouts, this is probably more relevant to fat clients. But you would need a way of managing updates and software changes. So just before we get into this, obviously, if you're running Linux desktops, you can just use something like Puppet or Chef or Salt. Mm -hmm. And And Windows. Depending on what you're trying to do. Some of the functionality is shitty. Right. Yeah, Windows doesn't, for instance, have a software repository that you just run updates. Right. Yeah. But WSUS does. It's not the same. Because it doesn't handle third-party software and stuff. It only handles OS updates. Yeah. And it is challenging in a Windows environment. Too. Like, for example, managing Java updates across your mm. Windows fleet, that is difficult. That is something you will manually be doing with your change management system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, not the manually, because best... it's still change management, right? But yeah, yeah, right. you're going to be doing the logic for that yourself. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really don't envy Windows admins. We are so spoiled as Linux admins. But that does bring me to my next point, right? About the different platforms. So if you are at like maybe a big design firm, right? Architectural design. So some of them are going to be using something like AutoCAD, which is pretty dependent on Windows. But your engineering department is going to be crunching a lot of numbers. So they're probably going to want something like Linux. And your HR department is probably going to want Windows and your graphics department, I mean, keep in mind, we're talking enterprise scale, so these, these places have a lot of in-house departments. And your graphics slash marketing department might want Mac OS. So you need to find a way of managing all these different platforms in a single source. Some of the change management engines out there do a better job of this than others. I like Salt the more I dig into it because it does have some of this figured out. And they have ways of basically rolling in support of anything you can tell net to even, you know? So it has ways or of, of managing that, but it's something to keep in mind that, yeah, like it, you should be treating it as cattle, not pets, but sometimes you have different types of, of cattle. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, like you've got different, what's the word I'm looking for? Livestock. You've got different cattle. Why do you always re- resort to cattle for your fucking... Because that's a it's a well known phrase, Jason. Oh, what the fuck? It started snowing. Oh, well, not not here. It's it's warm here. But that's a well known phrase, a well known modeling philosophy is cattle not pets, right? But I was extending that metaphor, saying, you know, sometimes you have different livestock. Like sometimes you might have cows, sometimes you might have sheep, sometimes you might have goats. Growing up my cousins lived next to an emu farm, so you might have some emus. I, I think I look a lot like them. I well my cousins? No, emus. Oh, <laughs> okay. Fair enough. But yeah, like I'm probably extending the metaphor a little bit too far, but that's my point. Like You still want to treat them as cattle, but sometimes it's impossible to treat them all exactly the same. <laughs> what? I'm trying to think of the last episode when you used this same fucking analogy. Oh, I use it all the time. 
I know. I'm not the only one. Nobody else does. No, yeah, a lot of people do. Dude, Google, nah. it. Google it. Right now, take the time okay. and Google it. I'm going to move on to the next point while you do that. Cattle analogy. And I think to close this out, like I said, it's a really It's short pets and segment. cattle, you fuck. That's what I said. Treat them as cattle, not also, pets. Also... What's really interesting is the very first result that Google pulls for the fucking top part is OpenStack documentation. So maybe get a new fucking thing. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't use OpenStack, though. But yeah, that, I mean, that's a very common thing. Cattle, not pets. Anyways, so what was I going to say? Oh, right. So to close it out, you're going to want central auth. Unquestionably. You have no reason to not do it. And not doing it is going to complicate your life. Whether that's Active Directory or just plain LDAP or something like Kerberos. Yeah, you can use Kerberos tickets for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Probably Kerberos would be your best bet if you have a mixed environment because it. I think so. It is probably the most widely supported, although Active Directory slash LDAP works as well. LDAP is painless in Linux. It's a little not... painful, but it's not bad. I can say it works. I don't know about Windows, honestly. It is easier. Uh, can you. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you can, can you use non-Active Directory but LDAP for Windows? I think as long as you have the Samba LDIF loaded in, yeah. Okay. Because I was going to say, for Mac OS, it's not bad either. I've done that. And even then, I think it would be only authentication. I don't think it would handle all the other stuff that Active Directory does. It definitely wouldn't be. Otherwise, free IPA would be a total drop-in replacement for Active Directory Masters, and it's not. Yeah, I They're need to stand that up, man. They're working on that, but it's not there quite yet. So yeah, however you do that, if you're Windows or mixed platform, you'll probably want some kind of Kerberos system. If you're Linux only, LDAP is, or Linux only or Mac only or a mix of the two, LDAP is probably fine. But Windows, you're probably going to want Active Directory or Kerberos in that mix. But they can all auth to Active Directory because, I mean, that's what's most commonly used, right? Yeah. So, and, you know, as with anything you're planning, you know, maybe right now you're five employees and you all use Windows, but yeah. if you're planning to grow rapidly and you're going to hire, you know, creative types or people who are more likely to be on a Mac, yeah. don't pigeonhole yourself into a Windows-only environment because yep. you will lose talent and you will piss people off. Or you'll just not be able to get talent. You yeah. Know? They wouldn't even make it past the interview stage because they're like, I, I don't want to do Yeah, with I'm not going to develop. Yeah. 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 So that's a good point. Yeah, keep that in mind. But Central Auth itself, is important to managing such a large fleet of workstations you know well and even thinking beyond the workstation when you have central auth available every oh, yeah, you fucking use service you stand else, up yeah. you can almost always use it mm -hmm. so you end up saving so much time because you don't have to configure a separate auth for everything yep and manage different users and groups across everything and and yeah. if a user leaves or whatever, you don't have yeah, to right. change it. You remove them in one places. place and every fucking service you use, they're gone. Yep. Yep. Email even. Yeah. Very useful stuff. Uh, central auth. Very useful. Yeah, definitely. But I think that closes out what I had to say about it. Do you have anything else to, to add or, or subtract? No. Uh, yeah. Fuck everything Brent said. That's my <laughs> subtraction. <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately, like I said, I don't really have to manage this. I don't have to think about it a whole lot. So I'm glad I, I don't. I hate user... Yeah, workstation. Yeah, I hate workstation management. But if I did have to, I think I would definitely demand more money because it's fucking terrible. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I don't hate it. I like some aspects of it. Like I like playing around with iPixie. I like deploying. You know, setting up the deployment aspect of it. And Central Auth, I'm really starting to get into. You know, with the the user identity stuff. Kind of digging that. But everything else, I would hate. Yeah. So it's it's not my ideal environment. All right, are you ready with your 15 clams? 
I'm so ready. Awesome. Wait, what's the 15 clams? You... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so this is actually, uh, this is 15 clams that stems from our last episode and a follow-up discussion I had with Nasbig in our IRC channel. Mm-hmm. So last episode, we talked about Borg Backup and Restic, which are two popular deduplicating backup softwares, respectively written in Python and Go. What Nasbig had mentioned in our IRC channel, and this is a common thing, right? I run mm-hmm. ZFS file systems that work for our large scale, like enterprise storage, and we keep snapshots on the host itself, like our primary systems. Right. We also keep snapshots and many more of them on the backup system. When you need to quickly recover a file or just go back a couple of hours or whatever, having local backups that you don't have to access remotely can be really handy and useful and helpful and blah, 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 whatever. That being said, ZFS has a mechanism for keeping local snapshots, but also sending them off site sort of in tandem. Mm -hmm. To the best of my knowledge, Borg and Restic don't have the same functionality at this point in time. They, well, kind of. Restic. So there's, I don't know too much about Restic, but Borg does have like a cache. Yeah, but they don't have like, you can't specify two destinations. So every time you back something up, it goes to two places. Right, yeah. It Which, goes it goes to the cache first where it's processed, you know, it's compressed and encrypted and stuff, and then it's sent to the storage. So I honestly don't know offhand how easy it is to restore from cache. Probably pretty easy, but you know, I don't want to make assumptions about it. But yeah, you're right. I mean you can't pick two remote destinations without manually kicking off two remote tasks. Right. right. And having separate repositories and blah blah blah. Right. And you know, good practice right. probably says they have separate passwords and everything else. Mm-hmm. That being said, so I actually find value in what Nasbig is doing, maintaining a, a local copy and an offsite copy. For my personal backups, I only do an offsite because I don't have anything I need to recover that quickly or anything else, so I don't care. Mm. That being said, what he is doing right now, and Nasbig, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but, well, I'm mentioning it. So <laughs> I said something in channel about doing this as a 15 clams, and he didn't object. So. So what he's doing right now is he's taking all of his backups locally with Borg backup, and then he's using rsync, basically, to copy the repository off-site. And I don't hate that, but there is an inherent issue with it that I brought up to him, and I will bring it up to you, and that's why we're talking about this. If you have an error in your backup on the primary side, Mm -hmm. by not issuing a second command to make an off-site copy... And just using rsync, you've now propagated that issue to your offsite backups. And when you're talking about a backup software that relies on diffs, mm-hmm. like Borg Backup, you've now fucked your backups moving forward. Deltas is more accurate. It's yes, not a straight right. diff, but Deltas. Well, I'm drunk now, so fuck <laughs> yeah, yourself. Okay. You're right, you're right, though. Kind of, yeah. So that being said, Borg also has a command, like a Borg verify command, Mm -hmm. that you can check the integrity of a repository. So inherently, I think that even if you're trying to do what Nasbig is doing and have a local backup and an offsite backup, you're better off doing the extra work and running Borg twice to create a local copy and an offsite one for that reason alone. Now, that being said, I suppose, I suppose if there's a one in 60 chance that you know, when you back up, there's an error. Because you're backing up more often to more places, you will inherently increase the likelihood of experiencing an error, but you're only probably going to experience it in one place and not fuck both of your backups at the same time. Right. I mean, it's still one in 60. It's just multiple sets of one in 60. Yes. Yeah. And so that is something that... By the I way, that's why up. people hate... That's why people suck at gambling, because they don't understand that. 
Like yeah. Every time you flip a coin, it's still one and two. It's not one right. and yeah. So I want to talk about that in the context of Borg, as I just did. Mm-hmm. But I also want to say, you know, if you are using something like ZFS and receive for replication, or if you're running any kind of offsite backups, you do not want to create backups of your backups. You want to always create your backups in all of your locations from the primary. Yeah. Because if you are making a backup and then propagating that to off-site locations or whatever the case may be, if you have an error in your first backup, you're just propagating it everywhere. So when you have an error like that, you've now ruined all of your backups, and therefore you don't have any anymore, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. That is... Now, it sucks, you know, right? Because it means you're... You then have to go through, have Borg run deltas twice. Yes. Or and, three times or four times or whatever. Yeah, and you have to evaluate this based on your own personal needs. You know, if Especially you're running Borg and time. Yeah. Yeah, right. So if you're running Borg and it runs for five minutes every day, doing it twice is not going to be a huge deal, probably. Mm-hmm. If you're dealing with an amount of data where Borg runs for an hour and then you're talking about two hours and it impacts system performance and people are noticing, that's obviously a different problem. And maybe you have to figure something else out there. Yeah. And that also, being said, we'll also keep in mind, and this is Borg specific, it's pretty fault tolerant. So at the most you're going to do is bone one of your snapshots. You're still probably going to have multiple snapshots unless you're really aggressively pruning <clears throat> like I did. <laughs> unless you're really aggressively pruning stuff, you're probably going to have multiple snapshots of the same data or yeah. data a day old or whatever. So yeah. So even if you do rsync that one particular backup destination. Yeah. You're probably going to be okay. But yeah, yeah, as Jason pointed out, I would say best practices would dictate doing a full, uncheating (laughs) backup to multiple destinations. Yeah. Yep. And you can do things like foregoing encryption for the local backup to save some time. Yeah. That will shave a couple minutes off. But yeah. And, you know, to be totally honest, with something like Borg, it's pretty configurable on a per repository basis. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're doing something like making one copy and then are syncing it off you're basically stuck with the same level of compression everywhere and everything else maybe your local copies you want to be less compressed if you're worried about fast access to restore files and shit but or your offsite copy you want a gzip 9 or yeah either way typically your backup server is going to have a lot more storage than your local storage yeah yeah but 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 on, well, on case, that note but also creating them yeah you, on that note it's not just repository specific it's archive spe- it's snapshot specific you can have one snapshot compress and then the next snapshot not compress and it'll still yeah. death yeah it'll still create the delta it's just fine yeah so so just think about that when you're planning these types of deployments and backup strategies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if you have questions about managing your backups ping us on irc or on twitter or on facebook or somewhere else <laughs> yeah don't send me a letter <laughs> well then they'd have to know your address maybe don't ask me because i'm already kind of <laughs> embarrassed about my gaffe like i was even i was taking backups i just wasn't verifying them so learn my lesson but also part of my mindset was like, yeah, it's just a chat system. You know, I, I have that config in multiple places and it turns out I didn't. So human error strikes again. But yeah, no, feel free to ask me if you trust my expertise. Same with Jathan. But yeah, those I think that is an excellent point about the multiple remote thing. Cool. You still with me? Yeah. Okay. I thought you dropped out and I was like, oh no, it's contagious. Do you have anything to add? No. Cool. I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. So I was right. It's a short episode. And I thought it was going to drag on long, too. But yeah. I guess not. So this has been System Minutes Trivia. I'm Brent. I'm Jonathan. And not with us, we had Peyton. <laughs> we'll, uh, we we'll had see him you. in spirit. In spirit. That's right. We will, uh, we'll see you around. Bye.
Shit.